Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 80 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Will Harrelson from Curo Legal about how to overcome resistance when your firm needs to upgrade its technology, systems, or processes. Today's podcast is sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud. Future-proof your firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacuslaw.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Zero Beautiful Legal Accounting, Simplified. Find out more at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. If you enjoy the show, please visit Lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So, Aaron, there was a pretty interesting set of posts that came out this week, and the ABA Journal kind of wrapped it all up. But essentially what happened is last year, law professor Benjamin Barton dropped uh, a book with all kinds of data about what solos make and essentially it looked like a graph that was just nosediving. Solos made an average of like $74,000 in the 60s and about $49,000 more recently, which seems low. And so a couple of other law professors have tried to take a different look at the data or use different data and have come up with much higher numbers, more like $100,000 to $165,000 on average for solos. And so I think it's interesting on the one hand because how do we actually figure this out and what is the real number? There's also some interesting sort of data sifting implications in there because they're all using different numbers in different ways and arguing about what they mean. But I think there's a pretty clear trend downward. Yeah, I, I think the trend, whoever's numbers you believe, I think the trend is pretty clear. Um, I think what's interesting is that some of these methodologies are survey-based and some of them are based on reports to the IRS or Bureau of Labor statistics averages or different things. And so I think there's a real question about which of these sources could be most accurate that I, I don't think is resolved. And it's not necessarily useful for people to be questioning each other's precise numbers when they have completely different methodologies for <laughs> right. getting there. So like, so part of the gist of the, the different numbers is Barton is using IRS data, which is accurate, right? You go to jail if you lie on your tax returns. Um, so well, it's that's about as precisely the point though. It's right. accurate if people are accurately reporting to the IRS. Well, but there, there's an additional problem in that um, there is no um, there's no employment code or NAICS code for lawyer. There's a code for legal services. Right. So that data includes paralegals and any other legal service providers you might include. And it's easy to see that the number of paralegals changing could you know, influence that information. If legal secretaries are reporting themselves as deliverers of legal services, well, we know that technology is making there be fewer legal secretaries out there. And so, um, maybe that has an influence on it, or maybe there are more paralegals because we need fewer lawyers to do the work. I don't know. But that's the problem with the IRS data. The other professors are using census data, which means you're just asking people what they make. And that has probably its own problems. So, and it well, includes. And it, it also isn't clear that it is perfectly correlated with people who are actually 
solo practicing lawyers. Yep. It includes part-time workers. It includes wage income that doesn't come from law practice. Um, So they're all, there's a lot going on in there. And it's, I guess you would say it's really noisy data. So it's really hard to figure out what it actually is. So I have one more wrench to throw in the works, which is... uh, Bring it on. In a different capacity, I just conducted a survey for the State Bar Association in Minnesota. Um, I'll be writing more about this in the next couple of weeks. Um, But one of the questions we asked of solos in Minnesota was how what their net income is. And so it's a graph that far more closely represents the lower end of the two competing professor standards. Hmm. So the highest grouping of net incomes for solos in Minnesota was twenty five to forty nine thousand dollars a year. Um, and the vast majority, I think about seventy five or eighty percent, fell under a hundred thousand. There was a small blip of people who make over a quarter million, but otherwise, it's very clear that the vast majority are grouped in the forty to sixty range. Um, and we, the way we conducted the survey, doesn't allow us to come up with an actual average. But and is that solos or lawyers generally? I have data for both solos and smalls. This, this is this would be just for solos in Minnesota. A little over twenty percent are in the twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar net income range. Hmm. Within another fifteen percent are under twenty-five grand. Uh, it's it's not an optimistic thing. Well, I mean, but none of this changes what my impression has been, which is that a lot of people wind up in solo practice without a plan. And there is something about solo law practice or law practice in general that makes it pretty doable to just sort of struggle along indefinitely. And so lots of lots of solos and lots of small firms don't really have a plan. They just do their thing and they struggle along and they do they make some money. And, uh, and they do that for a long time. And then a few people that actually have a strategy or are really good or are, are market like crazy or build amazing reputations are able to really bust out and spike the other end of the scale, which, I mean, remember the NALPS, uh, NALP's bimodal salary distribution curve, right? Most lawyers make forty to $60,000 and a very small chunk of them make tons and tons of money. Well, and in the NELP data, that includes big firms. And when you take up yep. big firms where salaries of a few hundred thousand dollars a year are not uncommon, you get to this graph for solos where um, there still is a little blip at the tail of people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but they're much more clearly outliers in the solo space. And if you take out kind of the couple standard deviations outliers of this graph, then it very clearly indicates that the core of solo small is around 50, 60 grand. Well, which and which so, to be clear, like you can live on 50 or 60 grand in yep. many areas of the country and you don't need to feel like you're struggling there, but it is not like a high income successful career at that point. No, and you probably need to subtract six to 12,000 to cover law school loans at least. So, but what should we do with this data? Because I, I'm, I don't think the conclusion that we should draw from it is doom and gloom. Being a solo is a terrible proposition. I think being solo is probably about the same value proposition that it has been for many years. And that if you go into it with a, a smart strategy and you work hard, you can absolutely blow 
blow away that that average or you can get past that the hump of that curve. Um, but if you just go in and want to do it and you're comfortable making $50,000 a year or so, you can totally just put your head down and do it and make that kind of and struggle along indefinitely at that level. Um, but I think that I think my takeaway is the same that it's always been that if you go in as an entrepreneur with a plan and a strategy and you work your butt off, you can do better than that. I think that's absolutely right as far as kind of motivating people to start a solo practice. I think there is legitimately a broader macroeconomic problem that these numbers are going down and the student loan numbers are going up. And Mm -hmm. the more those things come close to crossing, the more the whole thing will just fall apart for a lot of people. Well, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry Sorry to be a downer. No, I mean, that's totally legitimate too. I mean, they're they're... There are some unsustainable trends in the world of law practice right now, and um, a lot of them come back to the cost of legal education, but but also the cost of running a law practice. I mean, it, it isn't it is definitely not the most expensive business to start, but you know it's it's not nothing, and we have substantial burdens on us placed on us by the rules of professional responsibility, which I don't necessarily think are wrong. But we're asking people to do a, a lot and take on a huge responsibility for their clients for, you know, a pretty mediocre salary. And and nobody went to law school hoping to make $30,000, I don't think. Correct. So, I'd like to try to be optimistic about these numbers, but you are right that they are somewhat portentous. So, let's move on to something else, which I think is maybe a little more interesting to talk about, which is my conversation with Will. So, here it is. I'm Will Harrelson, Director of Product Integration for Cure Legal, a next generation legal technology consulting company. And I should say much more importantly than that, you also are a former writer for Lawyerist. Uh, Yes, I I am. (laughs) I'm a former Lawyerist blogger and uh, I still uh, also have a civil litigation practice in Ohio. Is that solo? Uh, no, I'm in a family firm. Oh, okay. So, family meaning your one of your parents founded it or grandparents or something well, actually, like that? Yeah, my grandfather uh, was one of the uh, founders of this uh, version of this, this iteration of it. It's a almost a hundred year old firm, wow. uh, Faust, Harrelson, Fulker, McCarthy and Schlummer. And uh, my grandfather uh, practiced and my father practiced with him. Uh, for a couple of years before he died when my father was young and I now practice with my father. Wow. So, like how much of your time do you spend practicing versus Curo? Uh, I, I mean, I maintain a full practice oh. and my work with Curo is is uh, on the side, I would say, although, you know, there's always answering an email during lunch or so. But uh, the way that we operate, I'm able to uh, kind of work when I have free time. Gotcha. So, um, and your practice is, is it uh, family law or criminal? I can't, I can't remember. It's uh, mostly business, oh, uh, litigation, okay. civil litigation, estate planning, real estate. Very cool. Um, and so, uh, we've had Nicole Braddock, also from Curo, on here on the podcast before. One of the things that I kind of struggle with is how to describe what Curo is. Um, you, you, there's not really a great <laughs> elevator speechy way for it, but I think what I've come around to is you essentially help uh, law firms figure out what technology they need and then you help them implement it uh, with everything up to and including like standing over their shoulder and helping them click the right buttons on the screen. Yes, we do that and we do two other things. We uh, do consulting for bar associations 
to help them build and implement technology or develop strategic initiatives to provide member value, uh, mostly based on technology. And we also uh, operate a uh, outsourced uh, legal assistant paralegal and freelance attorney network. Oh, that's right. So like if a lawyer wants a virtual paralegal and can't figure out how to get that to work out, you then you guys help them figure it out. Yeah. And that's custom counsel. Gotcha. Very cool. So today we're not talking about um, that stuff directly, but we're going to touch on it because um, so I was I, I was a solo or a very small firm while I was practicing. And so um, if I wanted to upgrade my technology, I just went and got something else and started using it and um, yelled at Randall, uh, who was on uh, <laughs> one of our previous podcasts. And I, you just yelled at Randall. And I said, we're doing it this way now. Uh, and that's how we did it. And at a very small firm, it's really easy to do this. But uh, uh, Lisa, our deputy editor, and I were talking earlier today about a friend of hers who is just acquired a firm, is acquiring in the process of acquiring another firm. Everybody's been using different things and they're not sure what to use to bring it all together, keep track of all their cases. Um, she asked him, you know, how many cases do you have? And he said, I have no idea. Um, and so they're trying to they're trying to make this happen. But um, because there's there's sort of all of these moving parts, all of this existing stuff, for some reason, they just went out and bought brand new servers. And so it's set, they have a lot more obstacles to overcome. And so that's what we're kind of talking about today is how do you overcome those obstacles and that resistance to um, implementing new technology and systems at your firm, which is what well, you've done a lot of at Kiro. Uh, yeah, we work uh, frequently with We've done a lot of work with solos or small two to five attorney firms. Um, and, and you're right. Those are normally more simpler uh, implementations and migrations just because the volume of data is so much smaller. It's more manageable. Uh, there's far fewer moving parts, less staff uh, to, that come along with the attorneys. Because you remember, you have to remember when you're uh, implementing new technology for a firm, uh, oftentimes, uh, it's always been focused on in the you know in the blogging and all the articles and CLEs. It's well the, the, what the lawyers need to know and everything. But your staff come along with that as well. Mm -hmm. um, so for yeah for a small firm or solo, it's it's really simple uh, or much more simple to do. But as you get into that midsize firm, uh, you know, 12, 20 to 50, 60 attorneys and staff, uh, it becomes a far bigger project. There's a lot more data. There's a, a lot uh, more policies that you have to take into consideration or retention things. And so it becomes a little bit more complicated and requires more planning. Although on, I suppose on, on the other hand, um, some in some ways, maybe it's easier because you just have the boss says, we're doing it this way now, learn the new procedures. Um, and so while the work of getting it implemented is harder, once the decision has been made, it's happening. And that's how everybody's going to do it from <laughs> now on. Uh, yes, that's sort of true. Yeah, does I, I that think, work? Does that actually work with lawyers? Well, it sometimes does. It depends. Part of what um, these size firms should take into consideration when they begin to look at a, at a project like this is how to a, a, obtain buy-in early. Uh, part of what we advocate is that in order to be successful, it's important to have as many people on board as possible. And if, you, if you're always swimming upstream, it's just going to make it more difficult as it goes. And every little hiccup along the way will you know, be magnified and people will find that as a reason that this shouldn't have happened. Uh, so it's important to get that buy-in early. 
And at the same time, it's also important to be considerate uh, and empathetic for individuals that are really going to struggle with the change. Um, if, if there's an attorney that has been using some legacy software to, uh, let's just say, enter time and, and prepare invoices for 10, 15 years, and, and then you're going to switch them to a cloud platform, and they don't even really trust you know, the internet, in mm-hmm. air quotes, in general, <laughs> uh, that is asking a lot. And, and so, part of what's important is to look for ways to um, make accommodations that are reasonable when, you, when it isn't going to be... Uh, an interruption of the goals that you're trying to get to. One really good example is email and Outlook. Um, there are certain attorneys that they just, it's visual to them. And, and I totally understand it because I've worked with people that it's visual. Um, if it looks different, if the operating system is upgraded and it looks different, it completely throws them off. Hmm. And so, if you're going to move to a cloud-based email service rather than, you know, what you might have an exchange server in-house or something, uh, it, it's okay if they want to access that through Outlook. And it, it may not be best to just force everyone to use the browser to read their email. Hmm. So, you find, you find ways to make people comfortable. I mean, but what, I mean, how do you go around getting buy-in from like IT departments, which... Um, you know, there, I think there's a couple of considerations there, both with outside IT consultants and inside IT departments. I've seen that IT departments can tend to get focused on on maintenance and they like things the way they are and don't get too excited about implementing new systems, especially cloud systems that require almost no maintenance and therefore um, may render the parts of the IT department obsolete. Um, so how do you get how do you get an IT department to buy in, or how do you get your outside IT consultant to buy in on your plans? Um, and in fact, how do you even pick one that's going to go along with uh, your plans in the first place? Um, you know, as as I mentioned the example earlier, yeah. somebody went out and hired an IT consultant who went ahead and got them set up with 20th century networking systems. So. How do you avoid some of that stuff, or at least how do you get ahead of it? Those are two really good questions, and I'll answer them in reverse order. Um, the The issue on selecting uh, a consultant or an IT vendor, uh, typically the law firms or uh, partners or attorneys that are in charge of these types of projects and decisions, uh, when they approach this, if they, for example, are dead set on going to the cloud, they will already have a feeling that they're going to have a certain set of qualifications or such that they will uh, compare potential consultants and vendors by. And if they feel like they're just getting recommendations for expensive server replacements, they will be aware of that. They'll look for for other vendors or providers that would help them. Um, But if you aren't dead set on that and you just know you need some improvements because it's been a long time since you've changed things and you know there's a lot of stuff out there, it's important to have conversations with those consultants about your goals, uh, what your objectives are before you even sign a contract or start paying money or getting underway. Because this is a, a very comprehensive process. You're fixing technology in a firm or implementing new technology uh, is a holistic process because you're dealing with both the technical things, but for lawyers, uh, specifically, there's so much process and procedure. 
and you want to make sure as a consultant that you're helping them practice more efficiently or better. And so those types of conversations with potential consultants or vendors should help uh, shine a light on their ability to understand that and, and make recommendations that will be um, supportive of, of those goals. So, so basically, you're on the lookout for somebody who's going to enable you, not try to tell you what to use based on what they think is best for them. Or they may, they may couch it in terms of this is what you ought to use because it's best for you, but uh, you might be able to sort of suss out that what they're really doing is trying to um, advantage themselves or, or decide that they like this better and not really take it as a hey, this is really what's going to suit your needs. Absolutely. Attorneys are uh, pretty well disposed to uh, figuring out who is listening to them. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they, they typically are able to determine if a consultant is really paying attention to what, they, what they're trying to say. To answer your other question, the approach for both internal and external IT support or vendors really is, is the same. There is... Uh, consistently a worry among those individuals or organizations that, hey, this law firm is going to move to the cloud and they don't need the servers anymore and we're going to lose our business. And it, it's just really not true. In fact, uh, what it's what's important for a law firm looking at these things to do is uh, to basically keep in mind that they're going to have uh, IT work or technical support issues that are going to come up. Uh, no matter how many servers a law firm gets rid of and, and how many different cloud platforms they might implement, there's still going to be printers and copiers and computer monitors and network you know, routers and, and access points and things that break or need maintenance or need replaced in, uh, in this size of law firm, obviously, a, a virtual law firm is a different animal, but there's not that many virtual law firms that are this big. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the, the typical standard law firm uh, of 10, 20, 50 attorneys, there are a lot of moving physical hardware pieces. And uh, the IT support, uh, either external or internal, um, they should... Um, realize and in, in, in the law firm should work with them to find opportunities for them to still provide value. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is that the IT department's role may not be to make the recommendations, implement the changes, upgrade the systems, train everybody. That may be a different vendor. It could be. Oftentimes, part of that obtaining buy-in um, uh, among all the parties is also the IT departments. Uh, it, it makes the consultant's life easier. It makes the, the managing attorney or partner or whoever's in charge of the project, office manager or whatever, it makes their life easier when whoever, whatever IT department it is, either internal or external, is part of the process and is helping implement and is learning something as well about how the firm will operate in the future. Hmm. Gotcha. We're going to take two minutes here to, to let our sponsors have something to say. And when we come back, what we're going to talk about is how to engage in this planning and how to avoid getting overwhelmed. Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully managed desktop as a service, engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. 
Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, simplifying your practice management since 1983. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Zero. Get a free trial at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. Okay, and we're back. And it, it sounds like a, a big piece of this is planning the implementation. So you've got all the buy-in, everybody's on board, and now you've got to figure out how you're going to do all of this stuff. So how do you how do you start planning? Um, what sorts of things do you need to take into account? Um, and, and then kind of how do you avoid getting overwhelmed? Because it sounds like this whole process can be a little bit overwhelming for whoever winds up being in charge of it, which probably starts out often as um, a, a partner or an associate at the firm. Yeah, it's really easy to get overwhelmed uh, when you start adding up all the different moving parts and what is changing and how many different parties are involved with the process. But the important thing is to start with a good plan, um, evaluating the, the current status of everything, how many users on different platforms or servers, how much data exists in different spots. All of that numerical information is really important because it will uh, it will change potentially the path that the firm takes for migration or implementation. Uh, one example is if you've got a firm that has uh, archived email going back 10 or 15 years, it is going to be a little bit more complicated to migrate to a cloud email provider than if they all just have very small inboxes on their individual machines or on a server that can easily be uploaded. It doesn't mean it's not possible. In fact, it's it's really not that difficult. It just means that the firm will take uh, need to take some additional time to map out when that kind of data will be exported, how it will be uh, converted to usable data, and the schedule that things like that will happen. Because all of these things are essentially business critical operations or, or, or software for a firm. So oftentimes you're looking at migrating these things on a Friday afternoon or evening over the weekend. So when Monday morning rolls around, uh, everyone is ready to go. So it's not the kind of thing that can just happen instantaneously. It's you need time over a weekend, but we're also not talking about like weeks. It's it's something that where you need hours or days to implement it and everybody can come back and be functional on a Monday. Yes, and it's really important in that planning stage to start communicating with all of the attorneys and the staff uh, members, any of the other support team, uh, any individuals that are going to be affected to let them know that this migration is going to happen soon. So you tell them maybe a month out or a couple weeks out, and then you remind them a week or so out. And as you continue to inform them of what's happening, uh, and let them know what the expectations are for that migration that you know your email will be unavailable for a couple of hours or maybe overnight or over Saturday 
most people are able to make accommodations for that, and the firm can normally find a way around any issues that may come up for work reasons. Uh, but the earlier you communicate that, the easier that migration goes, and everyone is understanding that things are going to be down for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. At, at the same time, there's also instances where you have multiple platforms that you're trying to migrate at once. And there may be, and often is, a, a domino effect where you really do need to have one platform changed so that that data can be leveraged into other platforms. Maybe, for example, your uh, document management uh, folder tree is going to be dependent on your um, client and matter management software. So you have to really get all that data loaded up in the first platform before you can tie it to your cloud storage platform and potentially your calendaring or your timekeeping or or anything else. So it's important to map out what data needs to be in what location first, and then just communicate with everyone involved as to what the plan is going to be, what the time frame is, and what the expectations are. So it's interesting to me because what we've been talking about is technology upgrades, but what's mostly involved is diplomacy and communication. Absolutely. <laughs> I couldn't, I really, I can't say it any better myself. Uh, it's, it, it is often a lot of listening uh, that needs to be uh, done by the managing partners or the, the project managers on something like this. You really do need to be empathetic to the users because um, no matter who you are, uh, there's someone coming in from the outside that's changing everything and everything's going to look different. And yeah, a couple people are saying that everything's going to be better, but those users are sitting on um, pins and needles waiting to see if it is true. One of the, one of the steps too that I, I guess we haven't talked about yet that I always think is kind of essential is training. I mean, you know, I, I'm someone who finds things easy to use most of the time. And if it's not easy for me to use, it probably is bad software. Um, but not everybody is like that. And, and lots of people are kind of afraid to poke around and experiment and try things. And so it, it seems to me that the final step in conversion is probably as quickly as possible to teach people how to use it and to teach people how to use it in the way that you want them to. Um, it, it is, is that something that gets neglected too often? Or is that usually or should that always be part of the plan? Well, it sometimes does get neglected, but with proper planning, you're right, that ends with good training and proper training. When this, when these projects don't go well or, or end up with some issues, a lot of the times it's because the training um, portion was uh, a bit... Um, Cut when short, these things, neglected. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> when these things don't go well, it's often because the training portion was a bit neglected. Uh, so... What um, what we look at is looking for for opportunities for small victories, small wins, and training is a great place to get some of those initial victories and and, and actually turn that buy in that you've been asking for from everyone into a tangible thing that they're actually using something and they're they've learned how to use a certain platform uh, and they feel confident with it and, and they actually are finding it enjoyable and better than what it what you previously were using. So looking for, uh, oftentimes, the firm should plan for uh, one of the smaller, easier migrations up front so that you can get that training started soon. 
And then you really start off on a high note with, with the team so that they look at those bigger migrations that come down the path and they realize, oh, well, I've, we've already started using this software and it, and it works really well and it wasn't really difficult to learn. We did a webinar or we have, you know, someone came in and trained us or we have this, this whole website full of resources. And, and so it, it tends to make the other projects a little less daunting. Well, thanks so much for the thoughts on upgrading technology and overcoming obstacles and planning for it, Will. Um, it was great to talk to you again and thanks for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.